But Ron Paul never sacrificed on his principles. Even standing up on those debate stages, he never sacrificed on his principles. So it tells me that either Gary Johnson is willing to sacrifice the principles that he holds, or he doesn't hold any. And I don't know which one's worse. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my Liberty Lampreys, to another edition of the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And I come to you today not from the Lions of Liberty studios in sunny Los Angeles, but from a hotel, actually, smack in the middle of the lovely state of Utah, where I am here on business for a few weeks. But that will in no way prevent me from bringing you another great conversation in today's episode, which is episode number 243 of this program And that means you can find the show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 243. Today's show is sponsored by our good friends at Health Excellence Select, who have put together the ultimate free market solution to your healthcare woes. Check them out at lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the host of the Lava Flow podcast, a great libertarian program that does carry the much bollyhooed Mark Clare seal of approval. He is an active member of the Free State Project, having recently moved to New Hampshire. He is the great Roger Paxton. Roger, are you ready to roar? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right, man. Now, now, Roger, I only—I have to admit—I only found the lava flow uh, very, very recently. But I must say, it is a pleasure to listen to, not just because of your views or your killer radio voice, but it <laughs> is very clear, I think, how much effort you put into uh, researching your show, producing your show, as opposed to this thing where I just, you know, vomit out a conversation to the world. But I, I do want to commend you uh, on the program, on on the effort that you clearly put into it, and we'll talk about that more in a bit. But first, uh, I just kind of want to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you just start off describing? Uh, kind of how you came into libertarianism, or maybe start before that, maybe start with uh, when your political views first began to take shape. What were your views before you became a libertarian? Well, I was raised as a neocon Republican by Uh-oh, my mother. Scary. I know, right? And my father was actually a liberal Democrat, union member, the whole nine yards, but I kind of gravitated to the neocon Republican side. My mom actually ran for city council. I helped her with that. And was a neocon for a long time until I found Ayn Rand, Ron Paul. I actually started following Ron Paul in the mid-90s, but it never really caught on. And then I found Ayn Rand, followed uh, Ron Paul a little bit more, and the rest is history. Yeah, that's interesting that you are listening to Ron Paul way before most people because I, I'm similar. You you got me beat on the time frame, but I started listening to Ron Paul uh, around 2000, 2001 when a good friend of mine, Howie Snowden, who's, who's one of our contributors to the podcast now, he uh, he mentioned that he used to talk to this guy, Ron Paul, back when he was a congressional page in high school. And he wow. said, you know, he talked to me about it just, it just struck him how, how cool he was and how he always wanted to just talk about ideas. And I was like, really? You just like talk to this congressman? That's weird. So he, he kind of turned me on. And I started reading his comments. And he was really the first guy that that got me thinking about politics just just differently in general. I mean, because he he was a Republican congressman, but then I see him writing all these columns like scathingly attacking Republicans. And that just is not what you're used to seeing in the political realm. You're used to partisan politics where the right always agrees with the right and the left always agrees with the left. And he was just really different and also brought to the forefront the concept of individual rights, which really I'd never seen a, a politician discuss before. 
And my introduction to Ron Paul was pretty similar. It was from a friend who, you know, had followed, uh, had seen Ron Paul from back when he ran for Libertarian president uh, nomination. And, you know, he introduced me to me in probably 96 or so, maybe 97. And, you know, I first thought, man, this guy's pretty cool until he said, no, I'm against wars. No, I want to make all drugs legal. And I thought as my neocon self, what the hell? I mean, we can't do that. So when did you start to, you know, more closely adopt views of, of, of a lot of what he was saying? Was it, uh, I take it, it probably wasn't overnight because you're, it's kind of no. it creates a synapse when you hear something that goes so against what you've kind of been trained to believe. So when did you start to actually take hold of some of these ideas? Well, honestly, I became a Pentecostal preacher for a while in there, and then I kind of became disillusioned with that, started reading some you know, anti-religious works, primarily from Ayn Rand, and that's when I really started paying more attention to this whole libertarian ideal, got back into looking at Ron Paul. This was probably 07, right, probably a year before his presidential run, and, uh, you know, and then I be, got really involved in the Libertarian Party of Arkansas, became the chairman for a couple of terms. My wife was a chairman for a while, and... You know, we got the state ballot, full ballot access for the first time in history. And then I finally just kind of gave up on that whole electoral side. I realized the Libertarian Party is getting us nowhere. I've killed myself now for, you know, eight years or so on the party. It's gotten us nowhere. So I started looking for another vehicle, and that vehicle is the Free State Project. So we moved up here uh, back in October of last year. Uh, was that before the uh, the official trigger of um, you know I, I think they did recently hit the uh, the magic number of of commitments to move to New Hampshire? But you did you move before that time? Yep, I moved when they had about eighty seven or eighty eight percent of the signers, and then they did a big push right after I moved, and that's uh, so I moved in October. They triggered the move in February. So are there other people that are now starting to trickle in that are actually you know moving now that this has I guess the official trigger has been pulled? Absolutely. So they've got this thing called the moving wagon where, you know, when you move, then you get, you know, 10, 15, 20 Free State Project members come to your house. They help you unload the moving truck, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And we're, you know, so they help you out. And I'm getting invites to these things almost every single day. It's just incredible how many people are moving up here. So, I mean, obviously the podcast is a big you know, new outlet for you that you've discovered after, I guess, being disillusioned with uh, political activism, at least on the electoral side, was there's the Free State Project similar in that regard. You kind of turned to it as a different way to sort of route your passion and route your activism when you saw that one way just wasn't wasn't working. It was. I started the podcast in January of 2015, or actually started a couple months before, but released my first episode in January of 2015. And that was kind of my way of stepping out of the Libertarian Party and moving on to, to something else. And then that's what led to the Free State Project and all of that. Let's go back to how your views started to shift. I mean, when did you actually decide I'm a libertarian now? I can actually attach myself to that label. I have shed my reptilian neocon skin. When did you actually make that decision and what really pushed you over the edge? Well, you know, really seeing, I, I guess, the wars, the the Patriot Act, you know, finally realizing what American soldiers were, were being asked to do in these wars and hearing the numbers coming back of the dead civilians and, and dead children, uh, Madeleine Albright saying that, you know, 500,000 dead Iraqis would, you know, is worth the, is worth the trouble of the, of the, uh, uh, of banning, you know, the, the boycotts and everything. So it was those things that really just made me start looking at it quite a bit differently. And then when I realized that we were losing freedom every single day because of the Patriot Act and, and what our government was doing, the spying and all of this, I realized that I was not really 
looking for liberty like I thought I was with the Republicans as a neocon. Because, you know, that's the thing about the neocons. We're for smaller government, for more liberty. But they're really not. And once I finally woke up to that, it was it was pretty much all over. Now, as you mentioned, you became pretty disillusioned with um, your work in the Libertarian Party, or at least maybe the results of that work. Can you describe your time in the Libertarian Party for Arkansas? Did you? I know you were chairman. Did you run for office at all? I mean, what what kind of things did you run into that that made you start to think that this is just not effective? I mean, what's the reasoning behind that? Well, when I took over the party, there were just a handful of members across the state, and it was just in a dismal state. It had been pretty active in the 80s, and then they took a chair who had it for 10 years and pretty much destroyed the party. So you know, I took over with nothing to work with, and I banged my head against the wall, and that's probably the best way to describe my entire time with the Libertarian Party. You know, banging my head against the wall with the state, trying to get ballot access, spending $50,000 the first time, $30,000 the second time, and another $30,000 the third time. And and we're having to do that every two years, and we're getting nowhere. You know, we keep adding more, uh, adding more candidates every year, but, you know, we're getting a constable elected or a city councilman elected. That's not ever going to get us anywhere. And, uh, you know, banging your head against the wall with that for eight years you're finally just going to give up. You can't keep doing that over and over again. Do you think that political activism uh, in in the sense that you were participating in, do you think it does have a role or have you just become so disillusioned with it that you feel like people should just abandon it altogether? Well, sure, there's a role for it. And, you know, I still follow politics pretty heavily, primarily because I do the podcast. And there may be a place for the Libertarian Party as far as education goes. I know that educational candidates, you know, I mean, look at Ron Paul, what he did. He didn't win. But he converted more libertarians in those two presidential elections than probably any other human being ever has. And ironically did so while a Republican. (laughs) Exactly. And Gary Johnson may have that same effect this time, although, you know, we can argue that. I don't know. The way that he's describing libertarianism is just confusing millions of people. But it may have an effect of of bringing about more libertarians. Who knows? Well, we will definitely discuss that in a bit because you have been quite critical of Gary Johnson on the Lava Flow podcast. But let's first talk a little bit more about the Lava Flow podcast. First of all, I know what it stands for. Some people out there might not. So why don't you just first tell us what the Lava Flow stands for? The uh, the LAVA are all capital letters. So what are those words? Lava is libertarian, anarcho-capitalist, voluntarist, and agorist. And, and that's kind of what I try to try to deal with is the whole spectrum of libertarianism. Because, you know, minarchists, sure, there's a place for them. I disagree with them now because, you know, I see things a little bit differently. But there's still a place for that. And frankly, anarcho-capitalists aren't born. You don't come out of the vagina as an anarcho-capitalist. You start off as a minarchist. So there's still a place to help bring them over. Of course, uh, anarcho-capitalism, voluntarism are essentially the same thing. And agorism, I think, is something that's super important because it's it's doing business outside of the state. You're giving up on asking for permission and you're just doing it and doing it peacefully, voluntarily. So I think that that's extremely important as well. What would be some examples of, of agorism for people out there that might not be familiar with the term, might not have really thought about it too deeply before? Well, a good example here in New Hampshire is every single weekend we have these uh, these events that are community market days where different vendors will come in. Anything from, you know, Shire Soaps, which is uh, run by a good friend of mine. My own uh, eight-year-old son sells snow cones and, you know, popcorn and things like that. And uh, you've got green burial services and food and, and you've got Bardo Farms, which brings in, you know, just tons and tons of pork to sell and, and vegetables. 
that's agorism. It's people coming together to trade resources for Bitcoin or cash for whatever product you have without asking for permission. And I think that that is one of the futures of where this has got to go if we're going to step outside of the government. So these are people that are all basically running businesses, but without that permission slip, without the, uh, you know, the LLC form or whatever, they're just peacefully trading with each other. That's exactly right. And do you think that that actually, you know, creates more libertarians? I mean, do you think that that, that kind of activity makes people realize, oh, wait, this is all going just fine. And maybe not, maybe other people we don't need to force to get all this paperwork too. Is that kind of the idea? Well, if you think about it, it I don't know if you take donations for your show, do you? Uh, we really need to start that soon <laughs> because a lot of people have been asking how they could do it. And uh, that's something sure. we're definitely working on. You know, I take donations from my show. I provide a product for, you know, and it's a free product, but people appreciate it and they give me money for, for that appreciation. And that's done completely outside of the government. And if we can keep expanding that, then that's when you really have true freedom. When the government can't stop you, they can't say, well, you're not paying your you know, your license fee. As a matter of fact, I, I got my beard trimmed just the other day by a, by an agorist uh, beard trimmer. Ooh, how um, dangerous. I know, right? Are you Obviously. okay? I'm sure your face is just entirely cut up. Actually, it's the best <laughs> beard trim I ever had. And my wife actually got her hair, got some color put in her hair from the same girl. And, you know, it, it was completely voluntary. Nobody got hurt. And the great thing about it is... If she were to, you know, screw up my beard, then immediately I would start telling people, hey, don't go see her. You know, you don't need to go see her. She screwed up my beard and she's going to lose business. So she has massive incentive to not screw up my beard. Right. You would just, you know, post on Yelp or, or wherever and then uh, maybe just word of mouth and say, uh, yeah, she's a nice lady, but uh, she's really not good at this whole thing. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't need government for that. And, and she's not licensed at all. And I'm glad of that because that means that she can charge me less money because she's not having to pay these exorbitant license fees and having to go to school for, in some states, months and months and months or even years to get a, a license to dye hair and to cut hair, which is just ridiculous. So I get a much cheaper price and uh, she gets to do the service. I think uh, a major example of what you might call agorism that we've seen recently that that obviously made a lot of headlines, at least in libertarian circles, is the case of the Silk Road and, and Ross Ulbricht. I mean, well, first of all, would you consider what Ross Ulbricht did or maybe was accused of doing? Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take the uh, the uh, murder stuff that's really not known out of it and just, just focus on the, the, uh, the drug website. But do you think that is like an example of agorism? Do you think that kind of activity helps libertarianism? Well, he didn't sell or buy anything on the Silk Road. It was the vendors who did. And, and the vendors absolutely were were practicing agorism 100%, whether they were selling drugs or whatever the case may be. It was completely outside of the government. And yeah, that's absolutely agorism. Do you think it can be a danger? Because I mean, I do see a lot of people in libertarianism who really promote what Ross Ulbricht, and I, I don't think Ross Ulbricht is a terrible person, but I think that there is some sort of acceptance of reality that we might need to have sometimes. Whereas, like to me, when I heard about Silk Road, I knew this guy's going to jail. They're going to find this guy and they're going to put him in jail. That's not right. That's not just, but it is reality. So I guess one concern I have is if people see the example of Ross Ulbricht and see that it's promoted and think, oh, I can help Liberty too. My fear is that other people that have good intentions might also wind themselves in a very predictable scenario, which is being in prison. Now, that doesn't, doesn't justify that it's happening, but it does. I do recognize that it's very likely that someone that does do that is going to end up in prison. So what, I mean, what are your thoughts on that as, as that kind of agorism as sort of a strategy? 
Well, and, and I think that it is an effective strategy in numbers. Obviously, Ross had a big target on his back because the Silk Road was big. It was in the news, and that presented a big target. But if you've got a 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 Silk Road sites out there, obviously, they can't get everybody. There's no way. It's not physically possible. It's not financially possible. And that's when you really start to break it down. And, and it's great for the users because – Let's just say I were a drug user. I haven't done drugs since college, but let's say that I were and I wanted to go buy some crack off off the street. I'm putting myself in a lot of risk to go purchase crack from somebody on the street who I don't know who may try to rob me, kill me, whatever. Here instead, I'm able to do that on the Internet completely anonymously and do that from people who have been rated and reviewed so I can see how good their product is, how good their packaging is, know what I'm getting, that I'm not getting some hot load or something like that. And, and it's much better for everybody at that point to take it off the street and actually put it in front of everybody's face where it's visible and wide open. I mean, I think that should be the goal to uh, not to keep things in the underground, but to get to a point where the underground becomes above ground, where where this is right. all allowed to to happen out, out in the open. Because, I mean, we all know that the the effects that that black markets have, I mean, obviously people use them many times for legitimate reasons. I mean, for years, people were using black markets to get marijuana. And thankfully, that is changing, although there's some problems with <laughs> with legalization, the way it's going, as you know, too. But I mean, I, as in general, it's better for things to be moving above ground. Whereas when you have to, to rely on black markets, you also are putting yourself in danger because simply by the nature of it, you're going to encounter criminal elements, many of which might not care about rights in other areas since they're defying one law, which may be unjust. They might defy some other laws, which actually maybe should be laws, even if we don't agree with the current structure, like, you know, not killing people. Right. In Illinois, uh, just today, just decriminalized, I think it was today, it may have been yesterday, just decriminalized marijuana possession. I think they're the 21st state or maybe the 22nd to eliminate criminal penalties associated with minor possession of marijuana. So it, it's getting more out there. But the problem is when you're only doing that with one drug, sure, you're helping. I mean, obviously, anybody who does marijuana, that's a big relief for them, no question. But when you're leaving that drug war out there, and even Gary Johnson himself says, I'm only looking to, to legalize marijuana. I'm not touching the rest of the drugs. It kind of leaves all of that still on the table. You're still not ending the drug war. It's still there. You're still going to have the risk. You're not going to have the ability to see you know, what's going on with the person selling it to you, what kind of product you're getting. So with marijuana, that's fantastic. I'm glad to see it. But we definitely need to expand that. Yeah, I, I agree completely because you see so much celebration in libertarian circles about marijuana laws. But uh, every day there are still people going to jail for a million other substances out there, right. whether it's whether it's something we think of as being inherently bad, like, uh, you know, heroin or cocaine or what have you. I mean, I mean, but there's also, you know, there's people that go to jail for prescription drugs <laughs> for having sure. too many of them or not having the right paperwork. I mean, there are so many ways that that ingesting substances has been criminalized in this country and throughout the world, really. And I think that any way to combat that is a positive there's also uh the danger of just like missing missing the point and kind of declaring victory when marijuana gets mostly legalized which i think it's 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 happening there's no way to stop it at this point oh yeah it's definitely going to happen in all 50 states probably in my lifetime i'm 40 and i'm guarantee i'll see that in my lifetime Roger, we're going to talk a little bit more about your thoughts on the ideas of liberty, as well as your thoughts on the current presidential candidate who's out there representing the ideas of liberty in a minute. But first, I need to take a little time out to tell our listeners about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. 
And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative, and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing, a killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full-service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440-283-684. Four, nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. Let's go back and talk a little bit more about Gary Johnson. I'm very conflicted on Gary Johnson because in many ways he is really, I think, so much better than Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. As, and especially on the drug issue, while that, I mean, the statement you referred to just there where they said, you know, we're not touching other drugs. And, you know, just to be clear, our campaign is only advocating the legalization of marijuana. Oh, boy, did that irk me the wrong way. At the same time, you know, in 1999, as a governor, Gary Johnson was calling for marijuana to be legalized, which really doesn't seem like a big deal now. But at that time, that was a really huge deal. That He actually, oh, yeah. his poll numbers plummeted because of that. And uh, he came back from it. But, you know, the, he took a very, a very non-mainstream position at a time when I think it was very needed. I think he's been a big part of the marijuana movement. Uh, I just don't know why. And he does speak against the war on drugs overall, you know, against uh, the funding of the police for, for military equipment, which are used for SWAT raids. He's spoken against that stuff but but for some reason they just got up and I, I feel like bill weld has got to be an influence there they had to stick in this line that says well don't worry we're not going to touch the other drug laws don't worry so i mean is obviously that's one of your criticisms of the, of the gary johnson campaign and one that i do share but uh what are some of the other issues that you have with gary johnson i, I you've been pretty open in your uh your dislike of his fantasy i guess would be a like, mild way to put it <laughs> yeah and it's you know and gary johnson he deserves props for some things like you mentioned he was one of the very first to come out for full marijuana legalization And I definitely give him props for that. And it seemed like when he was running in 2012 that he was expanding that to other drugs. But, of course, he's scaled way back on that. And I think you're right. I think that a lot of that is the Weld influence. And that certainly concerns me. Of course, Weld is no libertarian, no matter how much Gary Johnson says he's the OG libertarian. Weld is not a libertarian. At least with Johnson, you can say, yeah, he's more libertarian than not. My issue with that, though, is that libertarianism, the base definition of it is that you are not going to harm someone else. You're not going to advocate initiating a force against someone else. And Gary Johnson does that. I mean, he wants to steal money from people to fund Planned Parenthood, to fund scientific research, green energy, NASA. He wants to use force on companies for, to, you know, force them to, that for equal pay for equal work. You know, he wants to use force to keep guns out of the hands of mentally ill, which is such a broad definition. How do you even begin to touch that? That one actually bothers me more than all of the other stuff because it's such a an open ended kind of thing. And I mean, sure. when, when we start talking about mentally ill, I mean, look, obviously, if someone is is violently psychotic, I don't want them holding a weapon. But someone that is deemed to be at that point is probably behind bars or in an institution of some kind. And, and if we just talk about mental illness in a more broad way, I mean, what if somebody is somebody mentally handicapped in a, in a slight way? Do we just declare that person doesn't have a right to defend themselves now? I think it's a very dangerous and slippery slope to go down. 
Right, and I agree, and it, it, I I also don't think that felons should lose their right to uh, to own a gun as well. I mean, I, I know a couple of felons who right now can't own a gun. Their their felonies were not violent in any way, but they can't own a gun, which is just disgusting to me. How can you tell another human being who has never harmed another person that he cannot defend himself? And the same with the mentally ill. How far are they going to take that? I, I had depression several years ago for about a year or so. I was on drugs. I was seeing a psychiatrist. Would I, you know, now be able to? Ha- would I have to give up my guns for that? That's completely ludicrous. You, you, ha- there's no way to define that in such a way because I used to work in the mental health field in IT for mental health hospitals around the country, and the the definitions for mental illness are just so sporadic and so random. I mean, depending on what doctor you see, you could get three different diagnoses in the mental health field. So, are we going to base it on diagnoses that are so arbitrary and random? We can't do that. Sure. And there are no human beings on the planet that don't go through some sort of bout of depression, don't have some sort of mental issue at some point. And I'm pretty sure you could find a diagnosis for just about anyone and declare that they have some sort of mental incompetency. So to suggest that the government, who is already pretty much demonstrated a lack of respect for rights in many areas to suggest that they should have a power to remove a a very, very basic human right, the right to self-defense for a mental illness. While it might sound good on the surface to people who are concerned about violence, it really is a a very dangerous road to go down, as, as you just described. And I will give Johnson major props for being against the whole concept of taking people who are on the no-fly list and taking their guns away. I've got to give him props for that because he's right on with that one. And so, you know, Johnson has some good things. There's no question that he is right on. Roger, though, even when he said that, though, I mean, I was with you, too. He made a statement how government lists don't work and we shouldn't rely on them. But then I don't know if you caught it might might depend which exactly exact quote you heard from him. But I heard him say, you know, talking about it in an interview when he was you know sounding pretty good, talking about how the lists don't work. They don't properly identify people. But then at the end, he said, well, no, I wouldn't do away with it. <laughs> oh, no, I missed that. Oh, yeah, oh, you wow. got to go back and listen to, I think in our first Gary Johnson's Neighborhood, we discussed that one. So wow. I mean, even when he sounds good, it's like he has to add a little sentence just to be like, oh, no, but there's still a reason for you to be mad at me, libertarians. Well, and that goes to his pragmatism. He's trying to, he's actually really trying to get elected, which he doesn't have a shot in hell of. I don't care how many, you know, websites, post this. Well, all he has to do is win one state and then Congress will elect him. And (laughs) come on, it's never going to happen. Johnson is not going to win. So instead of trying to be pragmatic and actually trying to win, he really needs to do what Ron Paul did. And, you know, sure, there are issues with Ron Paul as well. But Ron Paul never sacrificed on his principles, even standing up on those debate stages. He never sacrificed on his principles. So it tells me that either Gary Johnson is willing to sacrifice the principles that he holds or he doesn't hold any. And I don't know which one's worse. Yeah, I mean, I just want him to go out there and start throwing some bombs, you know, proverbially anyway, you know, call out the drug war boldly and and don't just focus on marijuana. Even if you're not going to state the words, I will make drugs legal or anything like that. At least, call, you know, be be more bold in your presentation. Be more boldly against against the wars. Uh, don't tell me how great a public servant Hillary Clinton is. <laughs> right, right. And, and don't even get started on Bill Weld, who, you know, supported some of the strongest gun control measures in his state when he was governor. Of course, he's backed off and said he was wrong. Yeah, on that, but, but he wrote down on a napkin that he was reformed. So uh, I think it means it's fine, right? 
Right. But this guy also supported the Patriot Act. He supported the Iraq War. He supported, you know, eminent domain in New York. I mean, this guy. He supported a lot of the things that we criticize Hillary Clinton on. Right. Yes. And absolutely. He, and he loves to tout her, his long lasting friendship with her, which which the, the, the conspiracy theory is that does live in a small part of my brain is starting to wonder, OK, we have Hillary Clinton running for president. We have Donald Trump, who sometimes I think is still a, a Hillary Clinton plant. I mean, it's still that story is still out there that Bill Clinton encouraged him to run for president. Right. Uh, he says something stupider every day that makes me think, is he really just trying to throw this thing, even though his poll numbers seem to go up with it? And then now I'm thinking, do we also have a, a Clinton plant in the Gary Johnson camp, in the Libertarian Party? Because, I mean, Bill Well just does not have enough nice things to say about Hillary Clinton. Right. He loves that kid, as he says. I mean, you know, he <laughs> thinks he's a wonderful Right. Right. It's I, I don't get it. And and you're right. He absolutely, you know, does a lot of the same things that that Hillary Clinton is, is famous for. Of course, not as much the the scandals and whatnot. Thank goodness, at least not yet. But, you know, the thing that bothers me the most about Bill Weld is that instead of, you know, supporting Gary Johnson for president when he should have, he endorsed John Kasich. Now, John Kasich was horrible to the Libertarian Party in Ohio. I think it was Ohio. He basically his good friend John Kasich, I believe. Right. Was. His good friend, John He's Kasich, good friends who, with all these guys, <laughs> right. Who tripled the amount of signatures needed in Ohio for the Libertarian Party to get on the ballot. And now Johnson and Weld will not be on the ballot in, Ark, in uh, Ohio as libertarians. They'll be on as independents because of what John Kasich did, who was endorsed and is good friends with Bill Weld. Go figure. It's a very strange world we're living in uh, politically yeah. wise now. Roger, I know you don't support uh, any of these candidates, really, including Gary Johnson. So, uh, But we do live in a reality, and a reality is that one of these people, not even Gary Johnson, come on, one of these people, <laughs> Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, is going to be president. So do you see a scenario where one is better? You know, one is better for maybe for liberty, one is less scary to you, or is it really just, you know, I'm putting my hands in the air because this all looks terrible? Well, the only thing that I can say is that at least Donald Trump, there's no evidence of him being responsible for the deaths of brown people. Hillary Clinton is responsible for the, for the deaths of thousands of brown people. So from that perspective, I guess Trump is a little bit better. However, Trump is talking like a tyrant, like a dictator, and it's it's scary. Every time he opens his mouth, it just scares the crap out of me. And at least Hillary Clinton will probably get in there like her husband did. And, you know, she's talking a big game of liberalism and all of this, but she'll get in there and she will she'll be a moderate, just like her, her husband was. And she will, you know, vote and she'll do things based on what the polls tell her is the right thing to do. Bill Clinton did it for eight years, and I think she'll do the same thing. It kind of turned out okay for Bill Clinton. Maybe it'll do the same for her. But that's not an endorsement of Hillary Clinton. Of course not. I mean, I guess I guess in a Hillary scenario, we can only hope that she's not as bad as when she was secretary of state and uh, fomented wars in Libya and Syria and helped to uh, to fund ISIS. This is all facts, by the way. Some people are going to listen sure. to this and think I'm a conspiracy theorist. This is stuff that has been released through the WikiLeaks weeks, uh, not the stuff that's, that makes headlines. But I mean, it's it's basically a fact that Hillary Clinton orchestrated coups in several Middle Eastern countries. So this woman, e even though she's nominated at a, at a convention where people chant no more wars while she's on stage uh, without right. seeing any irony in it, it, there's a very clear evidence that she is up to no good. So, I mean, I guess the best we can hope for is the fact that maybe the president is a, has to be a little more restrained than even a secretary of state because they do have to deal with Congress and they do have to, you know, I guess um, somehow be beholden to the polls in some way. Well, I think part of that was that Obama didn't want to get his hands dirty. So he, you know, made her do all of the dirty work. And, you know, part of that being with uh, 
basically a warmonger president who's a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Uh, golly, how did that happen? You know, she had to kind of toe the line and do what he says. So I think that as president, she might not be as bad. I can only hope. But, you know, again, she is responsible for the deaths of thousands and thousands of people, women, children, men, innocent people. So she's an evil, evil, disgusting person. But but so is Trump. Right, right. <laughs> and I guess that's the, the best thing I can also say about Gary Johnson is as much as I disagree with him, like I don't feel that he's a evil, terrible person. I think he's just somebody who is taking a lot of positions I disagree with and you know, and is being influenced by this this dude, this this Weld character. So. Well, you know, somebody held a gun to my head and said, you have to pick one of these three. Clearly, I would pick Gary Johnson. There's no question about it. But at this point, nobody's holding a gun to my head. I'm, I will probably vote for some local libertarians in this state, but I don't think I'm going to pull the lever for a presidential candidate this year. Now, uh, as our good friend Chris Spengel would say, uh, you identify with the black and yellow, <laughs> the, right. the anarchist side of things. Why don't we just, why don't you just briefly describe uh, what anarchism is to you? Because I know that everybody has maybe their own definition, and I, I don't want to talk about a, a stereotypical definition. I want to talk about your definition. And uh, why do you use that label? Well, I don't use the label anarchist because it's it has a lot of negative connotivity well, yeah. to it. I generally use anarcho-capitalist, but that's kind of a confusing term because we're in a capitalist community now. It's really what we're really seeking is free market. Um, capitalism, crony capitalism is still capitalism. So we don't want that either. So really lately I've been using the word voluntarist and primarily because it really defines what we're looking for. Voluntary interaction between people without initiation of force. And, you know, voluntarism is what libertarian is. It is the core of libertarianism because anytime you, know, you go join the libertarian party, you have to sign a pledge stating that you're, a, you know, you will not advocate for the initiation of force in political uh, or political or, or, you know, areas. Libertarianism is exactly that. The problem is minarchism is not that because even with minarchism, you still want to steal money from people for police forces, for fire services, for whatever your pet project is. So it's just the natural evolution of, I guess, true libertarianism. Uh, but that sounds so pure, and that's not how I mean it. But right. it, it is the inevitable end for for libertarianism. Yeah, and to me, I've always had an issue with all of these labels, honestly, because I I'm not against government in the sense of human beings gathering together to create anything, really, police forces, fire forces, that's all fine. Uh, so I don't want to say I'm anti-government because in some way that stuff is government, forming judicial systems. Even, you know, many anarchists have ideas about how insurance companies might work better. And I'm, I'm all for people forming societies to experiment with all of these things. Uh, the problem comes when you take those ideas and then point it at like 100 people down the block and say, all right, you got to go fund my ideas. And I don't care if it's insurance companies doing that or if it's, uh, you know, governments doing that as, as we see them. Nobody should be allowed to force their will on other people. But even in the even the term voluntarism sort of causes an issue for me because, well, some things shouldn't be voluntary. Like, I mean, you should, if you murder somebody and run off to, uh, you know, your anarchist camp in the woods, like people are allowed to come after you, you know, you don't have to sure. agree to that justice system. So even the, I think all these terms have, have some issues, mostly in the way people will perceive them, not as much as when you and I break down the actual meaning of them. Right. And you, you mentioned murder is a perfect example. Now, it, when someone murders somebody, they have initiated violence against someone and they owe restitution to the family, whether that's, you know, 20 years of, of salary or 
whatever the case may be, the point is that, yes, you will end up having to use force against the person who initiated force to recover what was taken from you, um, the, the life of your loved one. And obviously, you can't be made completely whole in that situation because you can't revive a dead body, but you can re- receive financial restitution for that. And, and so it it's not anti-violence. It's anti-initiation of violence. There's a big difference, obviously. We're, we're not pacifists by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest myths of, of libertarianism that, you know, we just want people to do whatever they want. And that's really not true. I mean, yeah, I want people to take whatever substances they choose and I want people to live a lifestyle they want. But that doesn't mean I think people should be allowed to cause destruction to other people's lives, cause right. cause harm to other human beings. Frankly, I mean, I'm even okay with people banning all drugs if it's from their household, if it's their private property. You know, well, and that's we have the, to make and that's- a difference between kind of a, a rules and laws. Right. And that's the crux of libertarianism. The base of libertarianism is property rights. And that starts with your right to your body, your right to what your body can create, the, the fruits of your labor, so to speak, but also the property that you own. You know, I own my house. You can't come into my house. It's not a freedom of speech violation if I tell you not to come in my house and, 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 and spout racist remarks. It's, it's not, you know, a violation of freedom of speech. So property rights, if property rights were actually honored the way that they should be, starting with your body, then this would be a voluntary society completely. All right. Well, Roger Paxton, like I said, you put a ton of effort into your program to make it sound uh, smooth. (laughs) It's very well researched and you do a great job with it. And you really do get people thinking about things, which I think is uh, all of our goal right now with with the with the programs that people like you and I are producing. So uh, I want to encourage you. I don't I know I don't need to because you're going to do it anyway, but I want (laughs) to encourage you to keep up the great work. And before I let you go, why don't you just tell everybody out there where they can find the Lava Flow podcast and feel free to. uh, I know you mentioned uh, some possible expansions to what you're doing with your podcast production in general. So feel free free to talk, talk on that a little bit and and what can we expect from you going forward? Well, I started the Lava Flow podcast because you know, I listened to just tons and tons of Liberty content and there wasn't anything out there that gave me exactly what I wanted, which is you know, pithy, quick information without all the fluff, the inside jokes, the banter, the chatter. And there's a place for that. Sure, I listen to a lot of podcasts like that, but I wanted one that dispensed with all of that and just got to the meat and, and got out. So that's why I started the Lava Flow podcast. That's what I, you know, it's what I aspire to do every time I put out an episode. Get in, get the information out there and and be done. It's true. I never I never know what you had for breakfast or, you know, what if you walked your dog or I never know any of that stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> because nobody cares. I mean, who am I? Let's be honest. You know, I'm a nobody. But so that's what I started with, uh, you know, what I guess 20 months ago now. And uh, and it's grown beyond my wildest imagination. You know, it's now paying me money in my pocket. It's, you know, the my my numbers are through the roof. So at this point, I'm looking at expanding to uh, to other avenues. I'm I'm hoping to help others be able to come in, other content producers be able to come in and, and create podcasts in their niche the same way that with what I'm doing uh, with, with the Lava Flow, whether it be, you know, Christian libertarianism, whether it be, you know, uh, I'm looking at doing some peaceful parenting stuff, um, possibly some liberty entrepreneur stuff, maybe even a podcast just on agorism. So what I'm looking for at this point is, you know, some content producers who can come in, help me with that. I'll, you know, completely start them up. I'll, you know, get them whatever physical equipment they need, a mic, a mixer, whatever, set up their web page, do all of that. And, uh, and it, you know, so that way they only have to focus on providing wonderful content. And then I'll clean it up on the back end, release it and, you know, produce it in a, in a pleasing manner so that it's anybody can listen to it. So that that's what I'm looking at now. It's going to be under the banner of Pax Libertas Productions and uh, I've been 
looking at that for a year and a half, and I'm finally to the point where I can expand. So I'm, I'm going to be doing that. Uh, and you can get to my uh, website at thelavaflow.com. Of course, I'm on iTunes, Stitcher, you know, wherever your podcatcher may be. And uh, if you want to, you know, get in touch with me, if you've got a great idea to pitch for, uh, you know, doing some content for a podcast, send me an email at roger at thelavaflow.com. That's roger with a D at thelavaflow.com. All right. Again, Roger Paxson, check out the Lava Flow podcast, guys. It's exactly as described. It's great information and opinion without all the fluff. So if that's what you're looking for, go ahead and check it out. Roger, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a blast. Thanks, Mark. All right, gang. I hope you enjoy my discussion with the great Roger Paxson of the Lava Flow podcast. And I do not toss the Mark Claire seal of approval around willy-nilly, but this show has earned it. This is a show that is now a part of my regular rotation. It is just so well-produced and so, exactly as Roger says, concise and to the point. And if that's the kind of show you're looking for, I know sometimes I kind of meander on and on. <laughs> sometimes I might tell you what I'm doing, like the fact that I'm sitting here in the middle of Utah. But Roger doesn't even do that. Roger just gets to the point, gives you his thoughts, gives you the news, and gets the hell out of there. And it's something that I do enjoy. It's, it's a great change of pace in my podcast rotation, so I highly encourage you making the Lava Flow podcast a part of your rotation as well. Now, when it comes to this podcast rotation, coming this Friday, we've, of course, got another edition of John Odermatt's weekly look at the broken criminal justice system with Felony Friday. And then next Monday, I'm going to have an interview that is deals with a topic that's obviously you know, very touchy for a lot of people. It's very important to me, and that is, of course... 9-11. Now, of course, 9-11, the 15th anniversary is this Sunday, and 9-11 and is an event that has really, really shaped my political beliefs in many ways. Uh, that event is what really first got me looking into foreign policy. Uh, I started reading a lot of writings from this guy, Ron Paul, around that time, who had a lot to say about foreign policy. He was really the only Republican that was suggesting anything besides all-out war across the world in response to this event, and it really did shape my political views in many ways and really get the ball rolling on, on my political thought. Now, it's tragic that it took such a terrible event to to get me to that point or push me to that point. And I like to think I may have gotten there on my own otherwise, but uh, it certainly spurred me into awakeness of some kind. Now, a lot of people toss that phrase around, oh, you're awake now that you've discovered liberty or whatever, or Alex Jones. But, uh, you know, I try not to veer away from that language. I don't want to tell people they're asleep, but 9-11 really did wake me up. It really did wake me up into the ways of the world and to realizing that uh, a lot more thought needs to go into what the U.S. military is doing around the world. And, you know, it really did serve a purpose in that sense and and get me thinking about politics in a much deeper way. So uh, we are going to try to tackle this subject a little bit. I'm going to have James Corbett here to discuss the 28 pages which were released uh, earlier this summer the by the U.S. government. So, you know, I, it's really a difficult subject when we're talking about 9-11 because you know, so many people are just going to associate the word conspiracy theorist with, with any sort of question uh, around the events of that day. But in this case, we're dealing with something that has been released by the U.S. government. These are documented facts, or at least the government's version of some facts. So we plan to take a look at those with independent journalist James Corbett, who's done just a tremendous amount of work on the subject of 9-11. In the meantime, all I need from you guys is to promise to share this program. Tell your friends and family about this show. Tell them that you know about this great podcast where there's great conversations about the ideas of liberty. And maybe they'll be interested in the ideas of liberty if they hear some of these conversations. Point people to subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on Stitcher Radio, and please, if you haven't already, please go to those platforms and leave us a five-star rating and a great review that does wonders to help this show grow and get promoted on those platforms. And I only got one more thing to ask you to do besides that, friends, and that is, of course, live long and live free.